Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmakers Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. You know, we're going to be talking about going from almost academia to an entrepreneur and uh, definitely, you know, a very inspiring story. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, being almost, you know, close to, to the end, you know, with just $9,000 on the bank account. But I think that you're all going to enjoy very much this episode. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Charles Fisher. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So let's do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here. Born originally in uh, Michigan. So tell us, you know, how was life growing up? Uh, you know, um, I was normal. <laughs> you know, life was life was normal, you know. Uh, Michigan, Michigan's kind of interesting. Uh, I always joke that it's kind of an interesting U.S. state because it's kind of like halfway, uh, halfway U.S. and halfway Canada, you know. So I grew up like playing ice hockey when I was like three or four years old living in 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 lansing yeah now you you never you know really set out yourselves to yourself to become an entrepreneur i mean you had you know in your family you know the the academia and and you kind of like wanted to be a professor i mean was that because your dad and 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 how that inspired you and and then he took a different course or or why did you want to become a, a professor yeah, it's a, it's kind of a journey. Um, like when I went to college, I went to the University of Michigan, and I didn't I didn't enter college with like a declared major or some sort of idea of what it is that I wanted to do. It was, uh, you know, I'm at college now and I'll figure it out. Um, and I don't know. I was considering all kinds of things, you know, at that time, trying to maybe maybe being a lawyer, maybe being a medical doctor, maybe being an engineer. I didn't really know. After, you know, my first year there, I got a, uh, a research position in radiology department at Michigan State over the summer. Um, and I think the idea was that maybe because I wanted to go to medical school, I would be interested in doing this sort of research within the medical school at Michigan State. But I got way more interested in the physics of how MRIs work than in the actual medical part of using MRIs for imaging. So I kind of got really like just, again, engrossed in kind of understanding the physics of how MRIs work. And that kind of then led me through the rest of my research trajectory. I moved from magnetic resonance imaging to then the rest of my undergrad research was in NMR spectroscopy. And then I just kind of evolved from uh, really that, that interest in research and actually doing research uh, to want to be a professor. That's definitely where I wanted to be at that that point. Now, in your case, very interesting, the fact that, I mean, obviously you were you were on your way. I mean, you were on the path. I mean, you did the, the undergrad, then the grad, you know, you went to Harvard, then you did a dog, then you did a, a postdoc in Boston, another postdoc in Paris. And it sounds like uh, you were on track and, 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 and you have like this interesting blend of interest between biology, biophysics, machine learning. So how do these three come together and why do you develop that specific interest towards this? 
If I had to describe an overarching mission to my professional life, it would be to turn biology and medicine into a computation-first science. That is fundamentally what I want to do. Um, I think that you know when you look at those fields, um, you know mathematics is really the language of computation, and computers are getting faster and more powerful all the time. And people are consistently underestimating, particularly, well, in many fields, but especially in biology, life sciences, consistently underestimating how, what kinds of problems we're going to be able to solve with computation uh, in the future. So like, they think like, oh, well, we can't solve that today. It'll never be solved. And then five years later, computers are 10 times more powerful and they solve it, right? Um, and so that's really kind of been my, 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 like I said, kind of my life's mission. How did I get to that? You know, I, like I said, when I kind of was doing that research at MRIs, I got interested in the physics under underneath it, right? And studying sort of sort of that piece. I went back to school that fall at Michigan um, and started basically, I think I was originally trying to double major in biochemistry and math. And somebody approached me at some point and they said, hey, we're creating a new major called biophysics. So you can just have one major instead of two, but study the same study. You could get the same. Uh, stuff, but not have to take twice as many classes. And I was like, that sounds great. I'll <laughs> stay, I'll, I'll do that. So I was, you know, in that first graduating class uh, from Michigan's biophysics program, I think there were four of us. And, and yeah, that was the whole idea of it was this kind of really kind of a new idea of saying, like, how can we use computers and mathematics to understand, you know, biology? Unfortunately, I feel like despite you know, the growth in computational biology over the past, you know, um, 20 years, that concept is still pretty nascent. You know, um, biology is not a mathematical driven science yet, uh, but I, I do I do think that it will. Now, in this case for you, you know, everything took a turn into a different direction when, you know, you got a call to 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 go and join Pfizer. So so why? I think that when you're in academia, uh, it's a, there is this sort of like black hole that people refer to as industry in industry. It's like the whole of all of this, like it's all the same. Like if you go to finance, if you go to pharma, if you go work in manufacturing, that's all industry and it's all the same. And say, so, yeah, I had no idea what really happened in industry. Um, I had spent, you know, my whole career in, in, uh, in academia. My parents were in academia. So, um, yeah, so I had a friend, uh, uh, who uh, a colleague from from grad school who had gone uh, to work at Pfizer, um, and you know he really was able to convince me um, that uh, that going and moving into industry would be an interesting step. Um, and I'm super glad that I did it. I wasn't at Pfizer for a very long time, um, but I learned a huge amount. Uh, and actually not just a huge amount about business because yeah, you learn things about how the business works, about how pharmaceutical companies work, about what matters, what doesn't matter, about how clinical trials work, all things that are really important for unlearned today. Um, but I also learned a bunch of things like how to do better software engineering, uh, which is really, you think about as being something that's a, uh, sort of an academic discipline, but a lot of actually, like, there's much more emphasis on certain kinds of technical disciplines within industry than there even is within academia, software engineering being one of them. So I came out of, out of my time at Pfizer, I think, a much, not only, like, knowledgeable about the field and about the industry, but uh, with more, better technical skills than I had when I went in. You know, it's funny because they say that 
when you are uncomfortable is when there is growth. And and I can see how, you know, taking those, you know, crazy turns, you know, in your career and journey, you know, probably made you uncomfortable. But it sounds like you were from being uncomfortable to even more uncomfortable because after Pfizer, then you go pack your bags, go to San Francisco and then enter, you know, venture world, the venture world. I mean, that's like so random. Charles, what a, what a switch of events. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was because like, especially, well, the biggest thing was that my whole career had been doing research at that intersection of biology and math and computers. I just said, that's kind of my life's mission is to, is to make biology more mathematical. Um, but then I went and worked at a virtual reality company, right? <laughs> had nothing to do with <laughs> biology at all. Um, and, 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 and it was also a huge cultural shift because there was already, there was a culture shift moving from academia to Pfizer, but actually not that big of one in some ways. Academia is like a distributed bureaucracy. There's a huge amount of bureaucracy that you have to go through and everything. Every paper is peer-reviewed by these people. There's editors who do it. There's all these grant and grant-making agencies and you have all... So everything ends up being actually kind of committee and bureaucracy, like very, very slow moving. So working, it's just distributed. So working within academia and then going to like a big giant bureaucracy like Pfizer doesn't actually feel that different um, in some ways. There's different emphasis, but the pace of work and people's attitudes aren't particularly different. But moving to a tech startup, like a 50-person tech startup, is super duper different. So there was also a big, uh, I'd say, kind of culture shock um, from moving to Pfizer to then going to work at in, in, in technology. Um, so, but in this case, though, I mean, you were also in San Francisco. You were also exposed to innovation, to you know, other entrepreneurs to other startups. And, and I'm sure that that kind of like got you contagious too. And, and that to a certain degree, it, it allowed you to understand, hey, it's possible. I can do it myself. So how did you come across the idea of Unlearn? And why did you think that it made sense to live up, you know, your, your career or your corporate, you know, type of, of which was everything that you know until that point, you know, and really to say, you know what, I'm just going to, you know, give it a shot. You know, people start businesses for all kinds of reasons, right? And, you know, if you look at my background, like I said, I never really intended to be an entrepreneur. It's not what I was trying to do. I started Unlearn out of frustration. That's <laughs> uh, entirely 100% frustration-driven business um, in the sense of like that whole career trying to bring computation into biology, in academia, working to be, you know, do this. So we go to conferences, the computational part. It's like in a side room, like maybe in another building. Don't, don't bring that computation into the main building. Um, when you put, develop new computational methods, you publish that in scientific journals. They put it in the supporting information. It's not even in the main text. And then, you know, you go to Pfizer, and I'm thinking like, oh, well, there's this computational sciences group. Pfizer is clearly going to value computational sciences. And the thing is, like, not really. The people who are actually mostly in charge of these companies are biologists, medical doctors, uh, or financial people. Actually, a lot of the people, you know, CEOs of big pharma companies are from a finance company. So no one really cared about computation. And that was very frustrating for me because, again, my whole life's work is to say, like, I want to develop these computational mathematical methods for biology. And if no one cares about it, it's frustrating. Um, so what I would say that kind of became the attitude of Silicon Valley that got to me, um, this entrepreneurship attitude, was that really you can go take that sort of frustration 
feeling. And rather than just sort of complaining about it, you can do something about it. Start a company, build the tools and demonstrate value. And if you can do that, you can build a really successful company that actually solves real problems that uses these methods. We now have a lever to actually be able to demonstrate that these computational methods are valuable for medicine. Um, and that's really something, that attitude of, of you know, sort of frustrate, I, like really frustration-driven company building, I think it's actually really, uh, it's really effective. Um, I think there's a lot of companies that do that well because everybody who builds a company, everybody is going to run into some sort of obstacles. There are a lot of, diff- there's everyday difficulties. I mean, as a startup founder, I, like, I don't take vacations, really, <laughs> right? You know, I work all the time. I work every day. I, I work Saturday. I work Sunday. I work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I don't take vacations. And that's kind of what you have to do. And you don't, you're not doing that because of you want to, you're doing it. You're driven out of frustration to kind of solve this problem that you see in the world. I think it's a really powerful motivation um, that gets you through the difficult periods in building a company. So then walk us through the journey really or the ideation to launch you know phase with unlearn yeah so the early days of unlearn we i like to describe it as a reverse company actually a little bit so there's this one hand of saying well we have all of these new machine learning tools is there some way we could use them in medicine to make it better and you're really basically saying that we really care about solving these problems in medicine we're just going to be an applied machine learning group um, so the founders, myself and John and Aaron, all three of us theoretical physicists, all of us doing machine learning research in, in industry, we kind of actually thought about it in the reverse, which is that we we were looking at, you know, especially at the time, you know, on a dollar for dollar basis, maybe one cent of every dollar that had gone into machine learning research went into machine learning research for medicine, right? All of the money was being spent at Google and Facebook and Amazon and NVIDIA. And those companies don't care about medicine, right? They're working on problems that are relevant to their business. So almost no research, uh, you know, at, out of a, by a fraction had really been done on how do you do machine learning for these kinds of data. And so we thought, well, if we focus, whenever in machine learning or statistical methods at all, you encounter a new kind of data, you're going to have to develop new methods. Like we've seen that consistently, that a lot of actually breakthroughs in machine learning come from seeing a new kind of data. You get convolutional neural networks by looking at uh, images. You get transformers by looking at natural language processing, right? So when you encounter a new kind of data, you get a new kind of architecture. And so we were like, that's how, that's how we thought about it. We thought that by working on these clinical data, we would discover interesting machine learning. And that was really the genesis of the ideas. We were really a machine learning driven shop, like a, at our core, a deep learning based technology company, Tr- not trying to apply, but trying to invent. We want to invent new methods that solve these problems. In um, and that's really still fundamentally one of the key components of how we think about it. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Unlearn? How do you guys make money? So we are aiming to pioneer a technology that we call a digital twin of a patient. Um, so the term digital twin has been around for a long, long time comes from engineering, and people build these digital twins of devices. In fact, I think if you type in digitaltwin.com, it like redirects you to GE's website uh, and some article about building digital twins of like airplane engines. So the whole idea of a digital twin is that you have a computer model of an individual thing that you can simulate, and you can then ask various questions about. So our question kind of for unlearn is, well, how could we build that thing for people? Now, there's a big difference because... Uh, in engineering, we design the thing, so we have this blueprint. We can build this model that has all of the pieces. We describe how they work together and get this computer model. But we don't have that for people. You know, people have 37 trillion cells in the human body. Uh, so you can't try to build this bottoms-up model. So we take this other approach of really developing machine learning and AI-based methods for that. So then you have this series of questions, with, you know, setting aside how you actually create these digital twins of patients. You could say, well, what, what could you do if you had that? And there's this whole universe of potential possibilities of things that you can do. And for really our go-to-market strategy is to focus on how we can leverage, use these digital twins of patients uh, to accelerate medical research, um, and in particularly in clinical trials. Um, so every clinical trial is a comparison. You're comparing a new treatment, experimental treatment to what exists. So we create these digital twins of patients as they enroll in trials, and we simulate what would happen if they got this existing treatment. Then you can leverage all that information to run clinical trials that are smaller and faster. Now, I know that for you guys, the early days were not easy. You know, you were trying to raise money, and the VC community just didn't get it. How was that, how was that journey for you guys like? Well, I mean, the, very, the early, 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 early days of, you know, a three-person company working out of the garage or whatever is challenging for everybody. I, I, I do think. And you know, we had raised a small, less than a million dollars uh, pre-seed round um, from Data Collective. And there's a handful of these firms like Data Collective that are doing that, like those bets on these really, really early stage, early stage companies. Um, but then you have like, you know, you have the small amount of money that you have to use, you know, to build your business over a couple of years and trying to do that when you're building a new technology. It's not just like we're taking a thing and we're trying to sell it. To, you have to build the technology before you can sell it, right? And clinical trials as an area were 
not hot at the time. Like it, it, the people didn't really know what they were. We had to take all these meetings where we'd say, you know, explain what a clinical trial is <laughs> and, and, uh, and so forth. So we had the technology piece, we had the clinical trial pieces, like a lot of things that are complicated and scientific. Um, so we, uh, yeah, I mean, there was one point I remember those, uh, right, we were aiming, we were going through our fundraising process to raise our, our seed round. Um, and I think we had five total people uh, on, on the payroll and we got down to $9,000 in our bank account. Um, yeah. Waiting for it, which actually it's even it's even worse than that because we we for, we saw that coming. We knew that this was going to happen months before we were we 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 were like okay because we were doing this project with the pharma company and they were going to pay us right and we knew that they they were going to pay us and we could just do a burn down chart. We could be like, well, we're going to run out of money before they pay us. Um, so we uh, cut all our salaries <laughs> to, to make sure that we could get through that point. Um, and we hit that. That lowest point was nine thousand dollars. Um, we then got that pay. Uh, that that we uh, the cast we cashed the check uh, from that pharma company, raised our seed round, and you know now we've raised over seventy million dollars. Um, are running clinical trials, phase two and three clinical trials with big pharma companies. So um, yeah, you're gonna go through those really, really, really difficult ones and make difficult choices, right? Again, we had to sit there and we had to say, well, we can't pay ourselves as much anymore. And we weren't paying ourselves a lot to begin with. Um, you know, so there's this period where, uh, you know, this idea that somehow a startup is somehow a glamorous thing to create is not true. The majority of the time, it's really frustrating and challenging. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Now, in your guys' case, as, as you were alluding to, I mean, you now have raised 70 million bucks. Uh, but I guess the question comes to mind is, as you have put in more and more color to this, making it a little bit more tangible, has it gotten a little bit easier with raising money or how has that progression and those expectations have shifted from? Sure has. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, sure has gotten a lot easier. Um, I mean, in the end, what we do is actually relatively easy from a value proposition to understand. Right. And I think that that's where you get to like, forget the methods and all that stuff. That's complicated. But the value proposition, if you're a pharma company, let's say you're going to run a clinical trial with a thousand patients, 500 of them will receive your experimental treatment. 500 of them will receive a placebo. If you work with us, you get to run a clinical trial, let's say 750 patients, 500 receive the experimental treatment, 250 receive a placebo. And that means that you're going to cut off uh, somewhere around six months of, off of your clinical trial timeline. So you now say, okay, my clinical trial is six months faster. Uh, I can make hundreds of millions of dollars in additional revenue by selling this drug because I can get it to market faster. Um, so from the pharma company, there's a clear value proposition. But for the patients participating in those trials, the number one reason patients want to participate in a clinical trial is because they're aiming to get access to this experimental therapy. So in trials that we work in, patients have a much higher probability of being given that experimental therapy instead of a placebo. So it's a win-win for the pharmaceutical company and for the patient. Um, and when you can find something like that, that's a win-win. Um, once you sort of you can clearly articulate that value pop proposition, investors investors get it quickly, right? It's a win-win for everybody. And so, you know, then you start to sign up customers and yeah, then it becomes way, way easier uh, to, to, to do to, to raise capital, you know, we get, I'm, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a million, I was gonna say a million, that's, but we get, you know, dozens of inbound emails from venture capital firms every week uh, about trying, trying to invest. Uh, you know, the, the big thing that I would say there in terms of also 
the way that I think about venture capital investing um, is I really don't like the idea of treating it as transactional. Uh, so if you look at you know who we've taken capital from over the years, um, every single one of the people who've led one of our rounds, I've known for years before they led that round, right? So um, even though we just closed uh, you know, our Series B in April of this year, a couple months ago, I'm going to go out and start talking to venture capitalists now and building that relationship over the next few years and letting people, you know, be familiar and follow the company. I think that's so important. Um, you're not just looking for a cash. These people, somebody joins your board, you're going to work with them for years. And it's, I think it's really important to just kind of build that relationship. And in terms of building relationships with investors, I, I think that this is fantastic. The way that you're positioning this. It's not like, hey, don't wait until you need it, you know, build it, and then you can activate it whenever, you know, that is actually needed and you already know that individual. But in your case and in your experience, how does it go from being less active to being more active? I mean, how, how do you make that transition when it comes to building those relationships and raising the money? Less active versus more active. So what actually doing a financing, like when you're going out to raise the financing, is a lot of work. There is, you know, a period of usually about three months because you have to put together all these materials and stuff, right? As well, so you're yeah. getting your materials ready, you're getting your you're practicing, um, where you're really totally externally focused, um, and you know, as the CEO and the people who are really involved in doing that aren't really internally focused on like what's happening at the company, right? Um, and so I think that spending too much time in that mode is bad. Somebody like it is important to like focus on building your business in the end, like having a good product and having good customer service and having that stuff's really, really important. And it's probably more important. Um, so, I, you know, I think the the key aspect again is, is to, um, is throughout the year, you know, take, I don't know, two or three meetings a week. Um, these will be, you know, 30 minutes, maybe, maybe an hour, grab a coffee, uh, whatever it is with people. Um, and Figure out the people who you want to, you know, through those meetings, who you want to, you know, build that relate. Who do you think is going to be a good fit for your next round? Um, and catch up with that person, you know, every two or three months um, into, until it's ready. And because then they're, they're again, they're just seeing that that um, uh, that that progression uh, over time. You want to be showing them that your business over that period is growing, is hitting milestones, is doing better. Um, and then they're going to have that feeling that they that they that they know you, that they know your business, and that that it's it's something that they want to invest in. So I think that it's just that's the best thing is you want to rather than trying to do this thing where you're like running this massive process, you're going to set up this huge list of investors that you're going to talk to, or you're all going to go pitch pitch the deck. I think it's better to basically have like five, like over those periods, like the year or whatever between your raises, year and a half, two years, however long it's going to be, spend that time figuring out who the five people are that you want to, that are your top picks for investing in that round, getting to know them. Um, that, that's a just much better way. Uh, again, you're building that relationship. So when they join your board, it's going to be a lot better. Um, but also, um, you now don't have to spend constantly all of that time just pitching. You, you can still kind of focus on thinking about how to run your business. I love it. Now, imagine, you know, you go to sleep tonight. And you wake up in a world, Charles, where the vision of Unlearn is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think it looks like Star Trek. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, like the vision is very interesting. It's this like Star Trek medicine. 
that's the real vision. When you, I think about that long-term vision, the long-term vision is that, you know, like basically there's a virtual model of every human being. Um, and that you, rather than having to say like, go run experiments on real people, I'm running those experiments in a computer. Um, and I'm getting instantaneous information about what the right, what's, what that patient's prognosis is, what, how their health state of health, current state of health is, what's the best treatment option. I'm getting that instantly in silico. Um, and then, you know, maybe you don't even have to really go to the doctor. Like there's just, the doctor just pulls up the virtual view. That's a vision. Um, do I think that that's a vision that will happen in my lifetime? Right. <laughs> like, like when you're talking about that big of a leap in technology, you're talking about generational leaps in technology, not, not today. Um, you know, so in the shorter term, this question about, you know, with, with, with clinical trials, our real vision, you know, we, we have, um, an approach to using these digital twins of patients in clinical trials that really just makes those trials better. Um, in the sense, it makes them more efficient. Um, it makes them more patient-centric. It, is, it aligns with what patients want. Um, and we can actually prove, mathematically prove, we have like peer-reviewed mathematics papers that prove that, they, that these trials still generate rigorous evidence just like regulatory. Um, and so you get all of these things, uh, tremendous benefit with very little downside. Uh, so, you know, within the next, you know, 10 years, you know, our goal is to say that this becomes a new standard approach to how you run clinical trials, that every clinical trial um, is including this information from patients' digital twins. Got it. Now, in this case, imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that time that you were still at Leap and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what was going to be next uh, and, you know, maybe that you were going to start something on your own. If you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self, that younger Charles, and being able to give that younger Charles one piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I think that, you know, especially for people coming from my background, coming from the scientific background, there is this sort of lack of confidence that people often have starting a company around the business side of, of, of the, you know, what do your finances look like? How do you do sales? How do you, you know, sell the customers? How you raise venture capital? How you do all, how you do all those things? And uh, there's not much discernment when, like, when I interview, especially back then, when I would like interview a person who was like doing business, and then I like I couldn't tell if they were good or bad, <laughs> good or bad business person. They were a business person. They were just very different from me. It's kind of the way that I viewed them as kind of like an other. Um, I really think that that attitude that a lot of scientists have is is really detrimental uh, to being in a stuff. You can't view the business side as being something other that like you're not going to be good at. Um, I so th I, honestly, the piece of advice that I would have given is just to believe in myself in terms of being able to go out there and do that because the venture capital raising, like yeah, that's stuff that I've now all done, right? Like I did all that, uh, going out and pitching to customers. Yeah, I mean. I, Certainly, for the first you know four years, basically of the business, it was, it was me going out pitching to customers. Um, you know, now of course we have uh, brought on additional people to help with those things. But uh, you know, the early days are, are kind of like that first website. It was like me and my, and our first employee, Graham. Like, we sat down and we built the <laughs> we built the website. You know, you have to do all that stuff yourself. Uh, yeah, I'd say the piece of advice I would have for myself and for other people coming from the scientific background is just that you're going to have to do that stuff. And you just have to believe in yourself that you can you can learn how to do it. I love it. 
And Charles, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm Charles K. Fisher. Um, or you can just email me, uh, charles at unlearn.ai. Amazing. Well, hey, Charles, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today with us. It has been an honor to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.